1: Hi, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast with Diana Clark and Arden O'Connor. Today we are really honored to have Scott Squalache, a guest who is the founder and general partner of a law firm that specializes in life, estate, and business planning, and it is called Squalache and Associates. We have collaborated on many cases over the years, and we are really excited to have him as a guest.
2: Welcome, Scott. This is Arden speaking, and we're so excited to have you here today. I'm going to jump right in because I think your practice is fascinating. And, you know, having managed a bunch of cases with you, both on the legal side, but also as a trustee, you seem very comfortable managing cases that involved substance use, psychiatric issues. I think these are the types of cases that many attorneys particularly tend to shy away from, so I wanted the listeners to hear, and I wanted to understand better, sort of what made you comfortable with this niche demographic? Well,
0: first of all, Arden and Diana, thanks so much for inviting me to join you. And I, uh, I'm i so uh, honored to to work with you on a continuing basis because I think you guys do such a terrific job in this unique space. It's funny you asked this question to start with, Arden. I don't know if you and I have ever actually had this conversation, but like you, I uh, had some serious chronic mental health issues in my immediate family from when I was a young child, actually. Um, And that uh, is sort of the legacy that got me started, I guess, trying to understand and cope with these issues. Um, You know, sort of for privacy reasons, I'm not going to identify precisely who, but I can tell you that... Back in the, you know, sort of 60s and 70s, the, the disorder was considered to be a nervous breakdown, and it wasn't until uh, the psychiatric profession sort of developed more that people understood these organic brain disorders, and in uh, in my family's case, one diagnosis wound up eventually being schizoaffective disorder and another bipolar disorder, but it was really decades of sort of dealing with it at home that helped me begin to understand it and eventually professionally begin to be able to sort of deal with it
1: that makes complete sense scott because you do have a facility and comfort with the conversation and i would wondered whether you had a personal interaction with mental wellness
0: or mental illness i regrettably that continues to this day as you know these um uh, complex diseases uh are just that um, I actually, as we speak, have a family member currently hospitalized who decided to go off meds and you know have things reoccur, so these uh, diseases can be a, a roller coaster ride for all those around and and so kind of to answer the other part of Arden's question around how this um, sort of dovetails with the practice, it was really just a natural outgrowth of being kind of a personal family lawyer. Uh, that inevitably, first of all, I was comfortable asking about these questions and and frankly surprised at how many families uh, have these, what they think of as sort of dark, dirty secrets that they don't actually want to talk about much in terms of either substance use disorders or mental health disorders.
1: Yes, I mean, when we look at the statistics, just with substance use disorders, Scott, they think that it's somewhere around you know, 10% of the population struggles with a substance use disorder. And for every one of them, there are at least four or five other family members who are struggling as well. So we like to remember that those other people need assistance and guidance and help as much. And you are one of those people. Well, that's kind of say. I, I think, you know, part of the discipline
0: of trust in a state a practice lends itself to this because trusts wind up being really unique tools that can be useful um,
2: for families who are coping with these issues so that was where my next question was going to go to Scott which is know what are the legal considerations for families, for other trust and estate attorneys who might not be as well-versed in these types of diagnoses as you are, even for financial advisors? You know, what are things they should be thinking about if they know somebody in their family system has some type of special need, whether that's a substance use issue or something like autism spectrum disorder?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, just to sort of state the obvious, I think it begins with awareness. Uh, many people are... Um, on the advisory side, not always comfortable asking um, probing questions around these things, and family members are shy about talking about them. So, uh, as you know, it's a it's a range of experiences, and and people have complex issues that are sometimes undiagnosed and untreated. So, really, first uh, understanding the wellness of everyone in the family system is is a good place to begin, and asking probing questions about whether. There have been you know, sort of educational or behavioral uh, disorders that have been addressed, and whether there's been medication sort of prescribed and administered, um, and really just becoming aware. And, and frankly, again, from the advisor side, not being afraid to ask the questions and, and really probe around the stuff is, is the beginning of it. Once you are aware of the issues, then deploying the techniques to to help families cope with this from a legal perspective uh, in, involves setting up things that are that are going to be durable over time. Uh, as you know, these experiences can vacillate from you know sort of acute episodes to maybe even long periods of stability and some people are sometimes lulled into a, a false sense of security that that they're all set and don't need to have. Kind of continuing guardrails around how the money is being distributed, for example, and setting up trusts, just to use a specific example, that does not allow the beneficiary to remove or replace the trustee is that type of guardrail, because it's all good when it's good, but when it's not good, you really need sort of a grown-up around the table who's not under the influence of whatever the problem is to be making the kind of grown-up decisions.
1: You made a great point there, Scott. In your practice with people who have um, substance use disorders or mental health disorders, do you recommend that the trust instrument not, in fact, give them power to replace the trustee? Whether the trust instrument should give, remove, and
0: replace authority, I think whenever these uh, issues are hovering around, however clearly or not clearly uh, sort of diagnosed they are, You should absolutely not give the beneficiaries or the people in question remove and replace authority and make sure that the trustees are really uh stable professionals and in case they get hit by the bus there's a sort of on deck stable professional People often like to look to family members to be trustees, and I think it really blurs the roles for people because they go from being a sibling or a parent or an uncle to being the banker and the policeman and and clinician. And I think everyone should kind of pay attention to their respective
2: roles and kind of stay in their lanes. I like that. I wanted to go back to something that you raised, I think, in your answer, which is how do we, you know, how do you advise? professionals who are concerned about raising these questions? You mentioned asking probing questions. And I think for many financial advisors, even for attorneys, there becomes this fear that they're going to either get fired or look like they're being too intrusive. Have you found particular strategies that have been helpful in that area?
0: You know, it's funny. I I have not had that experience uh, in terms of fear of being fired. I, I find that more often than not, it feels like a relief for people to be able to speak frankly about these things. The challenge I have is that once you kind of, uh, pierce the veil and go into the conversation of what sort of that, which no one wants to speak of. Um, you can, I can quickly get in over my head because though I understand this stuff at a general level, I'm not a clinician, I'm not an experienced, um, you know, diagnostician around this stuff. And and it's important to know the limits of your own abilities. And so bringing in folks like you guys and other uh, experts uh, to help shore up the conversation is is really critically important.
2: I would love, I think so many of our listeners will experience, uh, you know, storytelling as a way to really have someone's practice come to life. Is there a particular case that you can think, and obviously without sharing details, Give us a sense of the context and either a successful outcome or one that you wish had gone better. Yeah, I
0: thought about this in preparation for this call, and I'm really reluctant to talk too much about any particular case because it's so easy to quickly identify people. And as you know, confidentiality is paramount to building the trust that you need to do this work. What I can tell you without talking about any particular case is that we have set up trust to be a resource for people who are unwell, often young adult children, but sometimes uh other, you know, sort of members of the family. And 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 it's worked. The resources get to where they're supposed to go without uh people potentially harming themselves. So for example, a rent may get paid directly instead of being used for drugs or illegal substances. The same for utility bills and medical bills and dental bills. You know, if we set it up so that they can be paid directly, then then things get back on track. Um, the other important thing that's happened when we've set these sort of instruments up and funded them is that the resources are there to keep the clinicians on board precisely when they're most needed. Um, and, and, and essentially, it creates a structure to support kind of the good behaviors. Um, people still need to do the work and get the proper medical attention with professional intervention, but making sure that there are resources there to pay for these things helps keep it on track. I can think of several cases, touch wood, that are going well so far uh, with these systems in place. For example, a former partner of 30 years, an adult child of a wealthy family, an adult cell building of a wealthy family, but I really don't wanna get into sort of the details. What I will say is that these tools are not only for the uber-wealthy, uh, in fact families with more modest assets have more to lose in some respects with fewer resources needing to be more judiciously managed, so I would encourage anyone who kind of struggles with this stuff to to talk to a personal family lawyer and get some advice.
1: Absolutely. We had a guest on the show earlier, my father, who has and has had bipolar disorder for many years, and he talks about the way he has structured his interaction with his financial advisor and also what he has disclosed to his lawyer. Um, How do you approach those conversations so that you are more apt to get the conversation going without them feeling as shamed or judged? Hmm.
0: It's a good question, Diana. I don't know if there's a really magic way to describe it. I really have worked hard to try to be in listening mode. I think once you just nudge people in this direction and you're open to be a a sort of thoughtful and caring listener, they will usually just open right up.
1: That's great. Because what his concern was, as a person with bipolar disorder who knows the genetics of bipolar disorder, he wanted to make sure that any of his instruments made a provision for people who were later diagnosed.
0: Right. Yeah, we see that often in families because the science tells us that it is genetically sort of inherited
2: I guess another question from my end is, you know, a a lot of the discussion around folks with behavioral health issues is putting up guardrails or clauses in trust and estate documents, which totally makes sense. Are there any universal, you know, practices that advisors, financial, legal or otherwise should be considering when they're creating documents that encourage You know, pro-social development? Are there things that you routinely suggest regardless of a history of any particular diagnostic issue within a family? Hmm. Another great question. The short answer is not that
0: I know of, and I would say that our profession generally is a little bit behind the evolutionary curve on all this stuff because we're so um, sort of risk-adverse, and and when you go down these paths, they heighten the risks to anyone having anything to do with it. The other thing that is challenging when we do this work is to try to uh, sort of know what we know and know what we don't know, just to state the obvious. You know, things can change uh, in a day or a week or a year or a decade. And particularly after people are gone, things can change. And so you don't want to set things up in too rigid of a fashion so that you can't accommodate kind of the changed circumstances that may arise. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I like to build in a lot of flexibility and and so I don't have kind of too many rigid directions in the trust. And the real uh, key to success here is picking a good trustee who has good judgment and similar yeah. values to the family and, and can kind of weather the storms.
1: That makes complete think- sense, yeah.
2: I think those are great points. And I guess another follow-up question would be if somebody is considering, you know, taking on a case where they know that there is a, a mental health or a substance use issue in the family system as a trustee, you know, is there any, when you think about the education process, is there a way for somebody to better understand what might pop up in their role? Is it, you know, reading books? Or if I'm in an, an early stage um, career professional and I'm interested in getting into this area, are there ways in which I could educate myself to be better equipped to handle these types of situations? Hmm.
0: Another great question. I, I, and I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, may, maybe there's stuff out there. In my particular case, you know, I mentioned it was more life circumstances that evolved over decades. I I think, and really not to sound sort of too self-serving, but I think that, you know, knowing where your boundaries are. I mean, at the end of the day, hopefully a good lawyer is a good lawyer and not necessarily a good clinician or pastor Mm -hmm. or, you know, fill in the blank. And and knowing where the boundaries are of your expertise and knowing where to find good help uh, and partner and collaborate with those professionals is critically important as we have done on the cases we've worked on. Makes a lot of sense.
1: We refer to people like you, Scott, because we don't draft trust instruments, right? So we, we do a good job of collaborating. What are the conditions that are available to create a wellness plan for somebody who struggles? Do you mean the conditions with the family or with the money or with the trust? Just that collaboration among these professionals can spread out the concern for the individual if you're managing the trust and the legal issues and a clinician is actually managing the psychiatric conditions and working together with the clinician and trustee, we see better outcomes.
0: Yeah, and you know you know this from your day job, but making sure everyone has upfront permission to share information. So having signed HIPAA releases in place so that when things become acute, you don't have to then be asking for it when it might not be given. So uh, there's kind of a practical aspect of the collaboration and there's some technical legal things that need to be in place for the collaboration to be effective. I would say you know the permission to share in otherwise confidential information And then, you know, just making sure it's set up in a way so that even when there's an acute episode happening, the professionals are still going to get paid for the important work they're doing. Because that's Mm -hmm. often the time that that people get fired, right? When they most need the help.
1: Give me an example of when that would happen. Yeah. Just not one of yours, but just an imaginary hypothetical. How could that occur? Well, I can...
0: Yeah, I mean, I can think of one in my own family where, in a bipolar disorder during a manic episode, the individual was so uh, out of sorts that 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 person wanted to refuse treatment and and became a little delusional that the clinician was sort of abusing her diagnostic powers, so filed a claim against Medicaid for fraud and you know <laughs> and did all this stuff to really. Uh, kind of blow up the
1: clinical relationship. Got it, that makes sense. Yes. So in your practice, and this is more of a benign general interest sort of question, in your practice of developing estate plans and trust plans for people, are you noticing that the age of beneficiary access to funds is getting older and older? Are you recommending that? So we've
0: really veered away from the traditional model. You know, the traditional model has been around for decades is to, you know, have kind of half the money spray out at age 25 and the other half at 30 or sometimes in thirds at intervals of 25, 30, and 35. I have uh, sort of realized over my time in doing this work that those sort of somewhat arbitrary ages can be very dangerous because... You don't know what the state of play is gonna be with someone at those ages. And mental health and substance use disease is, is one component, but they could just be in the middle of a horrible marriage or gosh, having had a medical malpractice claim if they're a physician, and all of a sudden if it sprays out just based on an age, then half or all of that money is gonna go sideways to some unintended beneficiary. So we almost never set it up based on ages, but instead uh, have the age be the trigger at which they get more visibility and transparency on the trust and for well beneficiaries, uh, maybe have some more control in terms of being able to remove and replace trustees and or be able to shut down the trust. Uh, There are some very healthy families that don't necessarily want continuing trust shares. And so there we often Um, you know just pick an age and and see how the kids develop I call it my young healthy child default but they typically get to participate in decision-making once they either graduate from college or university or turn 25 but they can't really take over control and or shut it down until they're 35 but it doesn't necessarily mean that the money's all coming out at that point depending on what's going on in their lives
2: yeah. I have another question just you referenced clients going through, you know, acute episodes and potentially getting fired. You know, what has been your experience with using some of the laws, I'm thinking particularly of Massachusetts, section 35, section 33, is that an area of your practice? And for for listeners who don't know, these are mandatory statutes for people who have displayed signs and symptoms of a mental illness or substance use where you can actually go to the court and get someone committed against their will. We see a lot of clients who really believe that these potential statutes could be the silver bullet to getting an answer, you know, that they want with a loved one to force them into some type of care. And I'm curious if your practice extends into that or what generally has been your experience? So we, we uh, at my practice
0: personally doesn't, but we have people in the firm now who are able to, to sort of apply for this type of relief before the probate court. But the reality is that it's it's really uh, a very high bar, as you know, for the court to sort of issue that kind of relief. You have to really demonstrate uh, clearly that the individual is in imminent harm uh, to themselves or others and uh, and that's a pretty high bar. I mean, people can be not well. I like to jokingly say you know they can be they can be very crazy, but they're not necessarily um, demonstrating, you know, suicidal uh, ideation or other, um, violent tendencies. And so that, that relief really isn't there. And then layer on to that, the fact that the courts are not operating in an Uber, uh, efficient manner, uh, during the pandemic, it's, um, it's not a great, uh, tool to rely on and really can only be used in the most serious and, and severe, uh, cases. Does that make sense?
2: It does. I guess my question is if somebody is thinking about that, is it always worth going to an attorney for a consult to better understand their situation or would you say if you don't have XYZ type of data, this is not even a tool to consider? Look, it's always hard to to give blanket advice like that. I think you know,
0: depending on what's going on, it never hurts to if you don't have an attorney on board to have one so you have a discussion partner for these things. Because there are other things you can do in terms of restraining orders and so forth, but short of getting someone kind of committed uh, that might be helpful. So it depends on the facts and circumstances of,
2: of the case. Makes total sense. Thank you. We're coming to the end of our time today, and we like to end with asking the guest, to give some thought to what are some things for the audience to consider as they leave you know what are one or two takeaways that you think are worth our listeners making sure that they retain coming out of this podcast
0: i guess you know one of the just basic kind of urban myths that's out there is that trusts are only for the uber wealthy and i think historically that's how they started back when the likes of kennedys and rockefellers used them as instruments for wealth transfer, but I think they're much more accessible and frankly affordable for everyone. And so I wouldn't just think about a will, but make sure you ask about a trust and and talk about the pros and cons and how they work. And they're not as mysterious as people would like to think they are. And frankly, not as cumbersome as people sometimes think they are. There's also this sort of notion out there that um, they only exist, um, you know, for the uber wealthy, and we're not, you know, trust fund kids and that sort of stuff. And I think that, that, again, I said it earlier, but the more modest your assets, the more you have to lose, and the more important, they be protected. So uh, I think uh, really thinking about trust more broadly as a tool uh, can be helpful.
2: That's a great note to end on. Thank you, Scott, so much for being a guest today. And thank you for to all our listeners who are here for another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Thank you, Scott, for your eminently oh, and
1: eminently <laughs> sensible <laughs> advice. It's, it's fun
0: to work with you guys, and I look forward to continuing our relationship. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.